0: Triumph and Tragedy in the Arctic. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Buddy Levy to the program. Good to have you with us, Buddy.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: Buddy Levy is the author of seven books and was co-star for 25 episodes on History Channel's hit docuseries, Brad Meltzer's Decoded. As a journalist, He's covered adventure, sports, and lifestyle travel subjects around the world. He lives in northern Idaho. He joins us to discuss his book, Labyrinth of Ice, the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition, one of the most harrowing adventures in the annals of Polar Exploration. Why did you decide to write about this particular expedition?
1: So when I discovered it, it was it was an interesting sort of backwards uh, encounter. I, I, um, I was in Greenland uh, write, as a journalist writing about um, an adventurer named Eric Weinmayer, who is the first blind man to summit Mount Everest, and, um, and he also kayaked down the entire length of the Grand Canyon, and I had gone there to um, write about him. Uh, and I was so struck by Greenland and the uh, the landscape and just the vastness of it. I started reading about polar exploration, um, and that was back in 03. Uh And then I, I got sidetracked, uh, wrote a book about Eric Weinmayer, and wrote a number of other books. Uh, but the polar exploration never really left my imagination. And um, a couple of years ago, my agent uh, said he had an editor friend who was really fascinated by um, polar Exploration, and I had been saving a file for about five years on everything I'd ever read, and the Greeley Expedition was um, the most riveting of them all, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and he, what an interesting guy was Adolphus Washington uh, Greeley, U.S. Army officer, polar explorer, and recipient of the Medal of Honor, which he uh, he didn't get for this, or m- maybe partly for this, but he well anyway, we'll talk more about that uh later um he he was uh, quite a man i mean he he really did a lot of different things in his life
1: yeah i mean researching about Greeley, you know you you get this admiration for um polymaths you know uh people that just are so multifaceted and and while his early career i mean um you know he didn't have a ton of formal education he signed on to the um u.s army at age 17 and, and apparently that was after he he'd been denied twice uh and he ends up being a you know civil war veteran and hero and um and then he worked for the the signal corps and i love the stories about him being out on the um planes of the american southwest you know setting up some of the first um telegraph lines and um encounters with um Indian tribes and uh, the guy was just. Then he then he started reading about polar exploration on his own, which was really, really fascinating. So he was very driven and self taught and um, and and incredibly able, you know. Mm. Um, so yeah, he, he's a national treasure in my
0: mind. Now, you said he started reading about polar exploration. I mean, I was curious, why was he? I mean, was he picked for this mission or did he just create this mission and then the Army went along with it?
1: Well, no, that's a great question. So he, there had been a mission um, that was conspired by this man named Howgate. Um, and and it for a number of reasons, it didn't get funding. And, of course, uh, at this time, you know, polar exploration was a very, very risky enterprise. And so um, the U.S. government was a little bit um, – and rightfully uh, hesitant to go sending um, our men into the polar regions because uh, crew losses at that time were about 50%. Um, But Greeley had found out about this uh, project called the International Polar Year, and this Austrian guy conceived of it. It was a really, really visionary project that was going to put um, 14 different countries at polar stations circumnavigating the Arctic region and and the the Greeley expedition was to be the uh, further the farthest northernmost of these stations and they're going to study uh, the Arctic region for uh, over two years really uh, and then compare all their notes so uh, when Greeley found out about that he was so taken by the the romance of it and the the opportunity for fame and fortune potentially because he he also harbored this secret desire to break the record of farthest north which had been held by the british for some 300 years you know the most northerly um travelers Mm -hmm. on the globe no one at this time had been to the north pole so i think also you know he was definitely driven by um that
0: explorers mentality Mm -hmm. and so this expedition was to go to the farthest north i mean farther north than other explorers had gone uh, and he didn't get to the north pole i mean but he got farther north is that the idea
1: yeah so but it was kind of cool because you know they had set up um their their station which was called fort conger um it was, a, it was a scientific expedition first and foremost, and the and the trip to farthest north was some, something that Greeley really um, didn't talk so much about in the initial plans. But he secretly had always wanted to go for it because he knew he'd be some four or five hundred miles south of the North Pole, where they were, where they where Greeley and his twenty four men were dropped off. And so they built this this fort uh, called Fort Conger, and they it was quite an elaborate. The details were elaborate. They had 65-foot longhouse that they had brought the wood for this thing um, in a 200-foot uh, steamship. Mm. So they had enough food for three years. They had timber, and they built this 65-foot um, long, 20-foot um, wide longhouse that housed all the men and had bunks, and they had kitchens. and I mean, it was very comfortable mm. uh, given that outside, you know, it was um, – <laughs> And <laughs> nearing 100 degrees really? below zero. You
0: know, it kind of reminds me of an 1881 version of the habitations that uh, scientists have now at the South Pole.
1: Right, and in fact, there's one, um, there's one uh, in, at the North Pole currently called the Mosaic Project that's floating along uh, on the sea ice for a year. Uh, and all this stuff, you know, Greeley and, and others had conceived of, you know, some 130 years ago, uh, and so they were really just incredibly brave and, and courageous men, and um, and Greeley knew, he took his scientific duties seriously, and so that was first and foremost what they were to do and take readings, uh, and then secondarily, he wanted to foray to places that no one had ever mm-hmm. been, and so they, they dispatched uh, these, he dispatched these um, special mission dog sledge teams with a couple of his finest men. and. Um, dogs and sledges, to go out on these um, really dangerous, uh, sometimes two-month-long expeditions from the fort.
0: Now, why? Uh, who was Conger? What, what did they name it for?
1: Oh, they named Ford Conger for a, um, a U.S. senator who had been um, supportive of their polar exploration because it wasn't always easy um, to get the funding, just as today, it's not always easy to get funding for uh, let's say space exploration. Um, and this guy named Omar Conger was, uh, supportive. And so, you know, they didn't name it until they got there. And, you know, they were dropped off. It's funny that, you know, you, you asked us, it's like, they were dropped off literally at what was the far end of the earth. And then the, the ship, the Proteus just left them there and, and sailed away. And I was always struck by that. You know, it was a lot of, uh, Arctic exploration, you stayed with your ship and whatever happened to the ship, which often was um, destruction by ice. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you, this was your, your mother's ship in your home. Uh, but these guys built a fort and then watched the ship sail away. And the plan was that, that, that they were going to be resupplied after a year and then after another year.
0: Mm. Now in in, in 1881, one thing I noticed if I got the math right uh, really had just married his wife three years before that.
1: Yeah, I guess space exploration is a, a good analog because, you know, you it's very uncertain. Um, there's danger involved and there's the unknown. And so you, you leave your family and loved ones. And in, in the case of Arctic exploration, these trips were always long um, and there was no communication. So
0: um,
1: imagine saying goodbye to your wife and in small children and boarding a ship in New York and then or Nova Scotia or Newfoundland, and then heading North. Uh, and I'll see you in a couple years, maybe, you know, <laughs> right. I'm always struck by that. Um, especially as a, a man with a a wife and family and, and, uh, you know, men, men did what they thought they had to do. Uh, and there was a great deal of national pride in it, too. But, um, you know, I'm glad you brought up Henrietta Greeley because she ends up being very instrumental in um, in rescue efforts.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, and also you talked about the competition up there. Other countries, I mean, primarily Britain, were doing more with polar exploration than the United States?
1: Yeah, they were the pioneers, you know. They had sent... Um, Dating back, oh, wow, to the um, 16th century, I, I think this uh, gentleman named Martin Frobisher, uh, you know, there were attempts for a long time to, to make it through the Northwest Passage. And so each time these British uh, expeditions would go, they would chalk up, however far north they went, they would chalk up this this latitude for farthest north, and um And no one had been to the North Pole, so they kept trying to get closer. Uh, And Greeley had, you know, was so interesting. He brought with him um, logs and log books and um, everything that he had ever read, a a library essentially that he had in his um, quarters um, of all the previous expeditions. And so there were no – and not only the information about where the the previous expeditions, primarily from Great Britain – had been, but also there were records of the caches of food that had been left in the region. And these Mm. become vitally important because when Greeley begins his descent from Fort Conger, which happens after the second summer, uh, they're they're, they're constantly aware of where food might be because food becomes a major factor in the later part of the story.
0: But they do succeed in going farther north than had been done before.
1: Right. So in one of the earlier chapters, it's a. I, I was always, you know, I grew up in in a, a mountain town and um, have always revered um, explorers and people who go out there on the edge. You know, the fringes of what is possible for humans, um, endurance wise and mentally, and and so there's some really great. That's why it's called the triumphant and tragic really polar expedition because the early parts of the, of the book and of the, of the expedition are marked by great triumph. I mean, these two men, um, Brainerd and Lockwood and one of their, uh, pardon me. And one of their, um, Greenlandic, uh, sledge drivers make it farther north than any human has ever been. Uh, and they, you know, it's a 60 day journey, 30 out and 30 back. And so, you know, the men at the fort wave goodbye to these guys and they trudge off with the dog sleds. And, and, you know, mo- two months later, they come uh, back waving the American flag with uh, sun blistered faces and, and snow blind. Uh, but you know, smiling for their, um, for their exploits. And so those are, you know, there's great joy at the beginning mm-hmm. of this book. Um, by the fact that no one at that time uh because no one had been to the north pole uh there was all sorts of speculation and theory about what lay up there so people believed some people believed that if you broke through this ring of of outer ice um that there was like a tropical open polar ocean up there and um really was able or, or his men Brainerd and lockwood were able to partially dispel that mythology, because um, as far north as they got, they they could see nothing but uh, frozen sea and
0: ice. Mm. We're talking with Buddy Levy, author of Labyrinth of Ice, the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition of the 1880s. Uh, more with Buddy Levy in just a moment. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast, and we depend on your contributions to keep us going. Uh, You can uh, go to our GoFundMe page. You'll find the link to our GoFundMe page on our uh, website, bobcudmore.com, and and it's very easy to donate online. If you'd rather uh, donate with a check through the mail, make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Buddy Levy with us, author of Labyrinth of Ice, the triumphant and tragic Greeley Polar Expedition of the 1880s, led by, um, and I believe he was a lieutenant at the time, A.W. Greeley. And all of the the American men who went on this were soldiers? They were in the military?
1: Uh, That's correct. Most of them were taken from the the, um, cavalry. Uh, and uh, and the signal Corps that Greeley had been um, running out uh, west. And so that that's really an, um, it's a kind of a big part of the story because um, these guys are very adaptable and it, and they end up, you know, be c- doing a lot of scientific work, but you know, they've just recently been riding a horseback uh, in the plains of the southwest, and now and now they're put on a ship and brought to the ends of the earth. Uh, and so they were, in certain respects, unsuited to the kind of work they were going to be asked to do. But they also were really malleable and tough and, um, and wore a lot of hats. And so I, I was totally impressed with uh, most of the men's grit and tenacity.
0: Hmm. Now you to describe the how two of them, two of the men got to farthest north and then, and then come back but uh you've got triumph at the beginning of your title and then tragic uh toward the end um they're waiting to be resupplied but uh an, their rescue ship doesn't come
1: Greeley had had very elaborate plans for and backup plans and contingencies and so uh resupply ships were supposed to come the end of the first summer and the end of the second and what happened was when Greeley went up there initially the, there was very open water moving through um, the the Kane Basin and the Kennedy Channel, which are really far up there between Ellesmere Island and, and Greenland, um, Canada and Greenland. But when the resupply ships tried to go up there, the, this bo- these bodies of water were absolutely choked with ice, and so they were they were cut off from supply. And there were also a series of debacles and bungles by the resupplies. Um, which had orders to leave. uh, Well, I mean, they had problems of their own. So what's really fascinating about writing the book is that I was able to cut back and forth between Greeley and his men waiting for um, relief, and then leave them where they are and move back because we've got lots of records of what happened to the resupplies. Um, And and these ships had had their own uh, ordeals and shipwreck and being crushed in the ice and men scattering along icebergs. And so you've got um, you've got these men uh, that are supposed to be resupplying Greeley that end up fighting for their own lives. Sure. Uh, yeah, so it's really harrowing. And um, and then Greeley makes the fateful decision to leave the, the comforts Fort Conger and head south due to prearranged uh, orders to go to this place called Cape Sabine where he believes that there will be um, sustenance and, and more gear so, and
0: food. So he didn't just make that up on the spot. That was one of the alternative plans, you say?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he gets a lot of um, unfair criticism, I think, because in hindsight, you know, you can say, well, if they had stayed at Fort Conger, they had food uh, and shelter, and they they probably would have survived. And And that's true. But Greeley was a lifelong Army man who went by orders, and the order was that if they weren't resupplied after the second summer, that they were to retreat to Cape Sabine, and uh, you know it was really devastating because when they finally make, first of all, there's an incredible ordeal of making it from 250 miles from from Fort Conner south, and they you know they end up floating on an iceberg for over a month uh, that is being broken up by other icebergs and cracking from below it's you know they set up a giant teepee on this thing and they're floating along at the whim of the tides and sea and they finally make it to shore and they they carve out this meager camp uh and it's only 22 miles from across from greenland they can actually see it from the bluffs above their camp see greenland uh on clear days uh and they know that there are Eta uh, Greenlandic peoples with shelter and food across the way, but they can't get there. Huh. So it's re- because of the conditions of the ice. It's just um, so painful to watch these vigils they hold, looking at the condition wow. of the ice and hoping.
0: And, and you say they they went south in boats? I mean, I thought they didn't have boat uh, a boat.
1: <laughs> R- right. So the main ship that left them uh, was a two- it was a massive two hundred foot. Uh, but they had a 20-foot-long steam-powered launch, called, or 28-foot-long steam-powered launch called the Lady Greeley, uh, and they had five or so other ore-driven whale boats. So when they leave Fort Conger, they, they go off into the water in with the steam launch towing this small flotilla of whale boats. and they've got all their gear, um, all their scientific gear as well, and this is an incredible odyssey of them moving south in waters that are just incredibly dangerous uh you know icebergs threatening to crush them, and uh, they have to make land numerous times and pull all the stuff up uh and then over time, they begin to abandon some of the some of the gear and boats because it's too heavy to continue to mm-hmm. slog along right yeah. so yeah, then they end up um sort of at the whim of the ice flows.
0: Hmm. And here is where the men die, correct? Or many of them die.
1: Right. So they make their stand at this place called uh, Cape Sabine. uh, And it is really tough because when they, when they finally make land after this ordeal on ice, Greeley knows that the Arctic uh, night is coming. So it's, it's late. It's uh, by October 15th or so in that, latitude the, the sun descends on the horizon and won't arise again for another four months so they they hurry they've got dwindling rations and they hurry to set up this makeshift kind of camp with one of the whale boats as the roof uh and canvas sides and and the, you know it's very low uh and it's all rocky with not much there and then and then it gets it, it gets dark and they've got you know two months rations for eight months before they figure any ships might come the following summer. So it's pretty grim. Hmm.
0: But uh how do the men die? They starve?
1: Well, well so yeah, it's, it's so this this part of the story is really really moving because they they've got hunters designated, you know, and by now they haven't lost Greeley has not lost a single man and there have been there have been near mutinies and people that wanted to go back and Greeley changes his uh, leadership style and to be more democratic and allows the men to make decisions. Uh, and so he's got this delegation that's like, okay, you guys are the hunters. We've got two months rations or we're going to cut those, uh, and begin very reduced rations. And then certain men go out on food finding forays or hunting, uh, trips and they're able to, they're very industrious and they, they make uh, little nets to catch uh, shrimp. Uh, and they occasionally shoot uh, seals and they're trying for walrus and bears. And so it, it it's this incredible attempt at survival. And I, I was so moved by th- that some of the men's abilities to be selfless and go out, um, you know, without much food and not much, no shelter, just sleep, sleeping bags and go out and try to find these caches of food they believe have been left by these previous British expeditions. And then the men begin to starve to death. Um, and it becomes this incredibly moving, um, story of, of hanging on and survival and humanity. And, and, um, Mm. you know, it's really tough, very tough at the end.
0: And was there cannibalism?
1: Well, so there's, there's a really, it's controversial. Um, Greeley and, his, and the survivors uh, never admit to cannibalism. And, in fact, they um, – when, when, uh, so one of the things I'll say is while these other men are going off to try to find food, and, um, there's a, there's, I also cut to these incredibly courageous rescue missions that are being orchestrated through Henrietta Greeley. And so they're trying to um, – the Navy finally gets on board, and they send these ships to try to go get them. And so while Greeley and his men are hanging on and barely surviving, uh, this man named Schley, Commander Winfield Schley, is uh, orchestrating this incredibly heroic rescue. And so they're bashing these giant steamships through the ice with iron prows and blowing them up ice with uh, explosives. And Greeley, meanwhile, is, uh, yeah, so the men that are with him begin to perish. And then when Schley finally makes it to them, they they decide there's a cemetery uh, that Greeley and and the the men have set up, um, and they Schley decides that they need to, t- to exhume these bodies and take them back um, to the United States. And when they do, there's reports that there are um, parts of the bodies are missing, and there's some speculation that there was cannibalism, and all sorts of sensational stories came out in the news at the time, mm-hmm. somewhat marring. The um, the expedition and its reputation and Greeley's, but also there are people who, who believe that they were merely using the, the meat for the shrimp traps. So it's not conclusive, but it, it looks like cannibalism mm. took place. And I should say there's, a, there's another man who was stealing food, and so while Greeley and his men are dwindling and, and emaciated, this guy is like over 200 pounds, and um, he ends up there's, there's some question about whether he had been um, cannibalizing mm-hmm. the bodies.
0: Mm. And didn't Greeley execute one crew member?
1: Well, right. So that's this guy, Henry. And, and uh, I mean, it's really tough because here, this dude is about 200 pounds, and it, it, it becomes clear he even admits to stealing food, and he's somewhat brazen about it because he knows at this point he's it would take four men to, to subdue him. He's so much stronger uh, and Greeley gives him every opportunity to to sort of come clean, and and he promises not to keep stealing, but he he ends up doing it one last time, and and then Greeley orders an execution, and he, and he thought a lot about it because mm. you know he he really wanted to maintain um, morale, and executing one of your own is um, is a tough thing, yeah. but he had no choice really, yep. um, and so yeah, it's it, this story. It has pretty much every—you ask why I chose this story, and I I mean— It has everything. Because it's got it all, you know.
0: So the—and we're almost out of time, but uh, three ships finally reached them in June 1884, and there are only six men left alive, right, out of 20 or so?
1: Yeah, well, there's 25, including really the beginning there. There were seven when they—when Schley and and, um, the naval— mainly two ships the uh but they make it to the um this they make it to the spit where greeley and his men are um and i mean it's quite remarkable that greeley and the the guys have put up this pendulum that they brought along with them and and you know they end up finding them through um just luck and also some information cached in cairns um but they, when they find them, there's seven of them, and one of the men who has suffered terribly from frostbite uh, trying to get food for the others um, ends up uh, dying Nine, on, the, on the ship home. So there are only six.
0: Well, Buddy Levy, we're just out of time. I thank you very much for this uh, conversation. Buddy Levy is author of Labyrinth of Ice, the Triumphant and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition of the 1880s. You have been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.